Welcome to Cinemascope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to Cinemascope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to Cinemascope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Sing Gloria, sing glorious, and there's one keg of beer for the four of us. You know this? Nope. Sing glory to the gods that there are no more of us, so the four of us can drink a ball alone. Nothing? Nope. It's it's apparently famous. One keg. I'm going to do some real-time. Here, one follow. more drink for the four of us. I found it on Wikipedia. Of... A.K.A. Glorious, or Drunk Last Night, <laughs> is a traditional, this is great, it's a traditional drinking and marching song. <laughs> yes, right from like the... <laughs> Thing. So WWI. There's something about Dutch, the Dutch in there. WWI, old WWI. Yeah. Drink, drink. The Saus family drink, is the best family that ever came over from old Germany. 
with the Highland Dutch and the Lowland Dutch, the Rotterdam Dutch and the other damn Dutch. Oh, I'm going to have to cut You're making all sorts stuff. of friends tonight, aren't you? I have to cut all of this. Uh, we got a comment from friend of the show, Nick Langdon, mm-hmm. that I wanted to get your opinion on, because I feel like we've talked about this, but we've talked about it from a decidedly uh, American point of view, and I feel like I am missing the global perspective which Nick has written in to share. He, uh-huh. was, he had written in to share, his comment was specifically about the, the uh, our review of Batman vs. Superman and the comparison against The Dark Knight Rises and how glad he was that we actually put Batman v. Superman ahead of The Dark Knight Rises in, in spite of J.J.'s uh, protestations otherwise. Uh, he says, uh, so he writes uh, uh, how it, it, Dark Knight Rises has 87% of Rotten Tomatoes. Staggers me, he says. I mean, people say this movie is dark, but uh, uh, TDKR is just unrelentingly bleak for all 165 minutes. Still, I do prefer, prefer the Nolan Snyder approach to Joss Whedon's almost Austin Powers-esque punathon. Where any attempt at a grown-up mood is undermined by the constant string of lame quips from all involved, even robots, because why not? That's not the point. I just adore that comment. The point is, he says this. Another random observation. Maybe I'm going to the wrong screenings, but listening to you guys talk, it seems movie audiences are a lot more extroverted in the United States compared with here in Australia. In my experience, no one bursts into spontaneous applause when a character appears on screen here. Must be that British stoicism we inherited. Now, Mm. that, A, seems crazy to me because all the Australians I know are crazy extroverted. I'm making a wild generalization because I know like 10 Australians, but these 10 (laughs) are representative of the bananas extroverted side of that country. I have never met an introverted Australian, and you as a citizen of Mm. Australia should have something to say about this, and I'm curious your your take on this uh, perspective. Are your friends all named Bruce out of curiosity? See, now you you got to go lampoon it. <laughs> They're not <laughs> No, they are not named Bruce. This is a serious serious line of cinema inquiry, Andy. <laughs> I but he he's right. He is right. Is he not that when we go to screenings, my screenings, your screenings, we all <laughs> We're all screening. Everybody's screening. Everybody's screening. But there are people I, who laugh and cry and cheer and burst into applause at the dead screen. It sure doesn't happen up where I'm living right now, because I'm so close to Sun City, where all the retirees live. You just don't get that with that crowd. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'd love to see it. There hasn't really been a good cocoon in a long time. <laughs> really hasn't. We need to drive you Miss Daisy, too. <laughs> so you're telling me they don't do that? You don't no, get depends. the screamers? It depends on the movie, and it depends on the time of day I go. I mean, if I go late at night or in the evening on opening night or something, you'll get much more vocal crowds. Um, that seems to be when it happens. Like when I went and saw, I mean, my recollection of something like um, Now You See Me, when I saw that, it was a pretty wild crowd. Mm-hmm. It just really depends on the movie, I think. You know, I've I've, I've, I've seen some that have been decidedly uh, less 
rowdy and some that have been more. I guess it just depends. I find that when it's a when it's a preview, like an early screening, that's when you get the rowdiest crowds. Mm. Those are people who are hardcore. They're doing everything they can to get there at like the first screening or whatever. Yeah. And we may be doing a disservice to even uh, American audiences because not all of them are screamers. And I think you're right. Even here where I tend to, I, I will go and experience a raucous crowd, uh, an emotional crowd, let's say, uh, you know, that doesn't happen two weeks after the film's been released. It happens like in the first two days. Correct. That's yeah, when the I, extroverts go. Can I tell you my favorite, uh, <laughs> my favorite rowdy crowd moment? Yes. It was when I went to see Batman, the original uh, 1989 Tim Burton Batman. And it was a midnight screening. It was my very first yeah. midnight screening. And there's that part in the movie when Alfred is talking to uh, to Bruce Wayne about how much he likes Vicky Vale, and and Bruce Wayne is just like, "Well, why don't you go date her, Alfred?" And and then a guy in the audience is like, "Nail her, Alfred!" <laughs> and that really was, was like the highlight for me. I, That's um, pretty good. It was pretty funny. That's pretty pretty good. funny. But uh, no, I love that the whole idea of the British stoicism. I, I just now I picture. Brits and Australians sitting and after the movie doing a light applause. You jolly good, jolly good. Which is which is totally uh, totally uh, untrue as far as I uh, understand it. I think I my understanding is actually that it was the extroverted British who moved to Australia to get away from what they left behind in Britain. <laughs> as you can see, my understanding of Australian history is spot on. It is. It is. So uh, between now and next week, I'm going to be diving into some Australian history books and see what I can discover. I'll be calling all 10 of my Australian friends to see if I can make right the damage I have done this Bruce evening. Bruce, one through 10. <laughs> Thank you so much. You know, I haven't been paying much attention to the Blade Runner sequel. As you shouldn't. <laughs> I know I shouldn't, but all of a sudden I am, you know? I mean, Dave Batista. And I, but I like Dave Batista. I want him to play. A, I like if he gets if if he's got a good character in this movie. I'm gonna have fun at this movie. Come on, why are you why are you hating on that? I'm not hating. I just I'm I'm concerned that they're making a sequel to Blade Runner. This is one of those things. I'm like, can you can you just not? I I don't know. I just feel like they don't need to do that, and it bothers me. Um, but then I'm like, you know what? I'll always have Blade Runner. I can see it. If it stinks, then at least I can just pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, I know. It's an interesting cast. Here's I just, the thing. I, Dillis, I, Dennis Villeneuve. Yeah. Right? Villeneuve. 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 Yeah. You call him what you want. <laughs> you, that's how he likes you to say it. I know that. <laughs> he called me. Uh, he thinks I'm Australian. Because um, <laughs> you're so extroverted. We liked uh, Prisoners. We liked uh, Sicario. I'm curious. I'm curious how Harrison Ford is playing into it. It really confuses sheepishly. L Y. <laughs> oh dear. Um, I like that Ryan Gosling a lot. How? Uh, but how is Deckard? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know. I Did know. you know that we recently just passed the birth date of uh, uh, Rutger Hauer's character? Like Man, that movie ago? was crazy in the future. Yeah. When I saw it. Oh yes, Roger Deakins, Andy. Hey, hey, I. It feels like you are casting an unfair amount of shade on this movie because of no, no, no. your affinity toward the first film. No, I told you, I I will watch it. I'll try to enjoy it. If it if it sucks, I'll pretend it it doesn't exist. If it's great, then 
you know, great. More power to him. I'm this curious. This is that thing you're doing with your inner child again. Yes. You're locking it, it up. I, I'm not locking it up. You are. You lock I'm, it up I'm, and under the stairs. <laughs> grounding it. You're I'm not, grounding I'm, it. It's, it's not playtime right now. Jeez. <laughs> oh, no, uh, do you know if um, if Villeneuve is directing um, uh, Sicario 2? Oh, that... that's a, actually a really good question. I um, I don't believe so. I don't think so, yeah. Uh, I, I did also only just hear that, that that the cast was coming back. Right. Isn't it a little bit strange that the whole cast, I think, is coming back, but not him? Well, it's not listed on anyone's IMDb page yet, yeah, so maybe, maybe he is. Yeah, maybe he is. Maybe he is. Maybe it will be uh, Emily Blunt's next big thing after Gnomeo and Juliet 2. Sherlock Gnomes, huh? Tying everything together? What do you think of that? (laughs) I think you have a problem. This is the next reel on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Good day. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, our final film in our 2016 series on 1939, the 10th film that we have talked about from this so-called greatest year in cinema. This time it's the truly classic Sherlock Holmes tale, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or join us on YouTube and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the next reel. And if you're the kind of person that keeps dogs in graves that decidedly do not belong there, then you probably have bigger problems than the next reel's Instagram hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. And since our own master of mysteries, Stephen Smart, got stuck in the Grimpen Mire whilst working to avoid the police, I'll stand in as his reliable sidekick. This week's movie was Peter Weir's 1985 film Witness, starring Harrison Ford, Kelly McGillis, and Lucas Haas. Congratulations to at Fegfi, who figured it out four images in. You are once again entered to win the 2016 hashtag pony prize. Ah, the blot spot, Andy. Ben oh, Lott yes. has written in with his uh, his take on uh, last week's film, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Yes, he says, my experience with Goodbye, Mr. Chips was similar to what you described at the beginning of the episode. Pleasant, but forgettable. I like these kinds of films, but I felt like there weren't enough scenes with Mr. Chips actually teaching the boys lessons. So in the end, I struggled to make a connection from when they were boys in his classes to the adults they became. More focus on a single class or individual students might have worked better. The only real emotional moment for me was when Chips lost his wife and child. Overall, the movie was okay, but nothing special. Your rank 107, my rank 192. See, I think the gray area in our list of movies that are okay is just bigger than his. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> oh, I, I agree with him, though, in hindsight. I mean, now that the movie has kind of sunk in, I think there is a, there, there is, a, if there is something of the heart of the film that is missing, it's what I do get in uh, in a film like Mr. Holland and a film like Dead Poets. Uh, it, it's the truly the teaching experience. Yeah, the teaching ends up becoming less about classroom teaching and more about, uh, you know, just more about, what does he say later about, you know, teach a young boy to get a sense of humor and whatnot, which are, of course, things that are completely arbitrary and you can't really judge that or or teach it but you know but that's kind of like what he became is that guy who it was kind of an experiential teacher yeah yeah so i think with that andy it's time let's do trailers 
So, Pete, I am so excited about this trailer. I want to hear. It is the trailer for the movie Swiss Army Man, which I had never heard of until earlier today. Um, apparently, it uh, played at Sundance, and uh, you know, it was, it was quite popular there. This is one of those movies that looks like a movie you'll watch, and you just won't forget it. And people complain about you know Hollywood crank stuff out that aren't original anymore. This defies that. This looks original and unique, and really. Really, uh, it just looks like fun, funny, touching, uh, fantastical. It, it just looks like a little bit of everything. Uh, this is the story of a hopeless man stranded in the wilderness who befriends a dead body. And together they go on a surreal journey to get home. This is, of course, Swiss Army Man, directed by Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Uh, the Daniels, as it says in the credit. Uh, it has uh, Paul Dano playing Hank, this guy who is stranded and it's just ready to kill himself when he sees a dead body laying on the beach, Daniel Radcliffe, and uh, befriends him. And it just is fascinating. Like this this trailer went in directions I was not expecting. And I can only imagine that the movie does the same thing. It's going to really kind of uh, uh, just go in a lot of different directions. You see him riding on Daniel Radcliffe in the ocean. He's got that hilarious moment when he first discovers the dead body and leans over to see if he's alive and just this giant fart erupts from <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> this is just one of those movies that is just like, it's it's. there's something magical about it. There's something just, it's like insane, but it looks like it has all the potential to be just really incredibly powerful. And I'm really excited to see it because it just it's full of something that I just haven't seen in a while. So, um, yeah, that's my take on it. What did you think? Oh, it was bananas. I loved it. I loved everything about it. I was really, really bummed when you called dibs on that trailer today. Um, and uh, I just think it's another great showcase of Daniel Radcliffe's like really charming talent, like very strange choices in films he has yet again proven that his real gift one of his great gifts is not allowing himself to be crazy typecast and he really could have and and it's just uh it's just a real treat i i this is one of those films that i, I got the same sort of warmth when i watched this film that i did when i saw the trailer for the lobster the first time and i, I it's just that just weirdness that you can't help but but warm to very very quickly so i i thought it was terrific it's a great pick yeah, absolutely. It did win the directing award at uh, for dramatic film at Sundance. They said, a remarkable film that brims with creativity, humor, and deft insight. A delightfully original film that balances fine performances with a rich and often breathtaking sense of design that bodes well for future projects. It is never anything else than provocative and entertaining. So, uh, yeah, it just, it looks really, really magical. And I just, I really can't wait to see this one. It's uh, going to be opening limited June 17th, and then it looks like it'll open wider July 1st, right at the top of the second half of the year. I look forward to it. Excellent. I was so despondent uh, that I didn't get this trailer, that trailer this week, <laughs> that I went uh, to, I, I looked far and wide for a trailer that would light me up, and I found one. Uh, this is, uh, of course, Zaschitniki. Uh, otherwise you might call it in English Guardians or The Defenders, I think is the actual title. I think it's released as Guardians, English title. Uh, this comes from director Sarik Andresian, uh, who's the, he's an Armenian director. He directed American Heist last year. Did you see that? 
I didn't. Didn't. Uh-uh. So American Heist, it's kind of a Fast and the Furious of heist movies, and you can tell it's the Fast and the Furious of heist movies because it stars Jordana Brewster, but also Adrian Brody and Hayden Christensen, which is a really strange pairing for a movie like this. Um, but it looks really interesting. I missed American Heist when it came out. I am definitely going to check it out on digital now before I get ready for this fantastic uh, Guardians this is a it, it is defined in uh, Wikipedia as a Russian neo-noir superhero film. Uh, it stars Sebastian Sisak, Anton Pampuchini, Sanjar Madiev, Alina Lanina, Valeria Shkirando, and Stanislav Shriren. I love that. <laughs> Shkirando? Valeria Shkirando. That's not even close. That's not even (laughs) remotely close. Anyway, set in an alternate history at the height of the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, a group of Soviet superheroes created during the Cold War is uh, is unleashed to fight today's uh, antagonists. So it looks really uh, the the trailer that we get is uh, it's an effects trailer of the some of the characters getting powered up. But the coolest trailer is the fight trailer that I have also linked in the show notes, which shows one of the heroes who has these crazy cool uh, sickle blades. Right? Handheld like scythe blades. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he goes to work on some SUVs. And I loved it. I loved every bit of it. What did you think? Yeah, the guy's a little bit Nightcrawler, uh, the way that he kind of uh, run. It's Nightcrawler slash, what's the really fast guy in the Marvel universe? Or Flash, if you're looking yeah. at DC. But I <laughs> right. can't remember Flash the Marvel Quicksilver. guy's name. Quicksilver. Yeah. Right. He's like a little touch. I can't tell if it's Nightcrawler or, or Quicksilver, but he he's. it's almost like he's poofing around and, and slashing everything to hell. And it's it's uh, pretty fun to watch that little uh, that little bit. I think it looks really fun. I, I don't know what to uh, to make of it completely because neither trailer is really kind of a story trailer. It's just right. kind of clip trailers. But it looks cool. It looks like they're trying to do something different. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of that those uh, that Russian pair of films that uh, Timur, what's his name, directed? Bekmambikov. Uh, yeah, Night Watch and Day Watch, yeah. which were kind of that those cool, like, you know, futuristic sci-fi vampire movies. Again, I haven't watched those, but they looked cool, and they were high on my my list, and I still have them on my to-watch list. Um, and this looks like that sort of film. It looks like they're trying to do something really cool and, and high-end and uh, really kind of <laughs> tap into the superhero market, because why not? So well, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I, but I, it's, it looks interesting. It's like they're creating a whole new uh, comic book universe, and I, I love that somebody's actually just jumping in and doing that. I do too. And I am, you know, my uh, exposure to Russian cinema is pretty slim. Yeah. And so um, I, you know, it's, it's one of those where, and this is totally wrong. I know this is wrong, but I am, I'm so U.S. centric in terms of just, or Hollywood centric, let's just say that, that it is difficult for me to see a big budget like Russian action film and not think, wow, they can do that in Russia, like without being based here in LA. 
How did they how did they do that? Which is totally it's totally incorrect. So when I see a movie like this, I get really excited about it and uh and because it it's just so much fun to be exposed to these these great effects films. There's another one coming out from I think it's a Finnish film called Rendell, uh which is another one I'm really excited about. It's another big superhero film um that I I just uh, I think it's it's just great. And did you ever see Ant-Boy? No, I didn't. So Ant-Boy, yeah, it's a it, it was directed by uh, Ask Hesselbalk. I think it's Danish. Anyhow, yeah. it was a terrific uh, f- film, and it was just a, another great approach to uh, this sort of superhero gestalt that I don't I don't see enough of. So I'm very excited to be exploring some of these uh, international superhero films. Anybody has any ideas of great uh, superhero films that are not Marvel or DC? Uh, send them our way. I would love to love to dig into more. Yeah, I'm looking at this Rendell. It looks pretty cool. Yeah, right. Like really interesting character design. Yeah. Huh. So anyhow, that's uh, that's what I've got. This one, uh, this Russian film, uh, the Serik Andresian uh, Guardians, is due out. It looks like sometime in February 2017. That may be our first 2017 trailer. It's been pushed back, I think, a number of times. So uh, we're not going to see it here for a while. Aye, aye, aye. Uh, actually, I, sh- I take that back. February 2017 uh, in Russia. We don't have a U.S. release date yet. Wow, it'll be a while, I guess. Be released in Eng- the English title is is officially the Defenders. The U.S. informal English title is Guardians. Con- very confusing. Now, isn't there another U.S. Uh, comic book hero movie coming out called The Defenders? I don't know that. Maybe that's why the U.S.A. informal English title is Guardians. Yeah, I would think so. I don't know. I don't know. Huh. Anyway, interesting. Very exciting. Oh, cool. Uh, so with that, I mean, you put all that, you put all of that, uh, all that stuff together, Andy, and and what have you got? What? Murder, my dear Andrew. Refined, cold-blooded murder. In the classic tradition of mystery and suspense, Playhouse Video presents Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hound of the Baskerville. Mr. Holmes. You're the one man in all England who can help me. Well, won't you sit down? Thank you. I'm in mortal fear Sir Henry's life will be stuffed out. Why, what makes you think that? I have information which leads me to believe that for centuries past, every Baskerville who's inherited the estates has met with a violent and sudden death. And certain death is just around the corner. Now, will you please tell me what this is all about? Dr. Mortimer bringing me here to see you. This letter. It's about you, Sir Henry. Your inheritance, Baskerville Hall. And Dr. Mortimer thinks that it might not be safe for you to go down there. Safe? On account of a hound. A wild, supernatural monster that has cursed you Baskervilles for the last two or three hundred years. And it's up to Sherlock Holmes to solve the mystery. The Hound of the Baskervilles, Andy. 1939. Uh-huh. This this is this is a movie that's been made a lot. This has been made, <laughs> yes, over twenty times. This film, this story has been told. Shimini uh, in film, yeah. This one uh, comes uh, courtesy of director Sidney Lanfield. It was the first of the Basil Rathbone and uh, Nigel Bruce pairings as Doctor Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson. The first of fourteen, uh, and. 
what makes uh, of a long career, well, a short but deep career, uh, as these two characters. Uh, 1939. It is also the final in our 1939 series. Uh, what? How did you? How did this film hit you? I like I said, I hadn't seen any Sherlock Holmes films other than Young Sherlock Holmes and the recent uh, Robert Downey Jr. films. I have never read any Sherlock Holmes books. I feel like I actually caught a piece of one of the versions of this, a much later version in color, because I feel like I saw a ghost dog barking at Sherlock Holmes somewhere. That being said, um, this was okay. I mean, I did enjoy Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce as the infamous pair. Uh, The story itself just reminded me a lot of those early mysteries that just had a very simple story. And when you actually pull it apart, it's a pretty illogical story. And that was my problem with this. I mean, I enjoyed it, I guess, in the sense of, you know, it's a it's a Sherlock's, Sherlock Holmes mystery. But in the end, I kind of look at it, I'm like, yeah, but there's just so many story problems I have that I just don't think I, I don't, didn't care much about it. Uh, well, I, first of all, I'm exactly with you, and I, maybe even more so. I think the um, the story problem that I have, the biggest one, is that it's it the its portrayal on screen is really dumb. They certainly didn't have the aesthetic to be able to create a a vision that is truly haunting. Uh, this, of course, is the story of Sherlock Holmes and and Doctor Watson. We should we should say for those who haven't read it in a long time or haven't seen it in a long time. Holmes and Watson end up investigating the legendary demonic beast that targets an entire family throughout history uh, that is triggered at this point in our uh, story by a dashing young heir on his return to the family estate in Mordor, the saddest place on earth. Uh, This is not a—that is one thing they get right. This is a a really depressing uh, landscape. Uh, but the the problem the problem that I have with it is I just don't think that they they had enough of the technology or the sensibility to create a haunting enough um, character uh, in this dog. It is it I was I never found any reason to be threatened, and anyone who was quote killed by this horrible dog uh, was it just to me seemed like they it, it was a series of terrible accidents. Apparently, uh, only to justify the dog in this film, but apparently in the Hammer version of this story, they used, uh, when the dog came on screen, they had two children dressed in in, uh, Holmes and Watson's outfits running through the mire to look like they were you know, to look like this dog really was giant, was yeah. really giant and dwarfed <laughs> them. And so they had this dog run up to these two kids dressed in their outfits. And apparently it just looks like a dog playing with two kids <laughs> dressed like Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. But I mean, at least they were trying. Yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. right. <laughs> but you see what I mean? Like they could have gone one of two ways, right? They could have gone, um, they, this is a film that could have gone much more sort of B-movie monster and created something much bigger and less believable. In this case, they used a real dog and it was a large dog. Um, uh, it just didn't seem terribly threatening. It seemed mostly just sort of hungry and well, and they energetic. Remove all the 
and they remove all the ghost elements from it. I mean, in the yes. book, yeah. that you know, the guy uh, Sullivan covers it in phosphorus, so it's got that glow. And the way that he writes it, it's like you know, with flames coming from his eyes, and just all this, you know, this interesting wordplay to make it sound like it really is this demon from hell. When well, you actually see it in the in this film, uh, it really is just it's a dog. dog. There's, yeah. yeah, there's nothing ghostly about it. Well, and that's my point. Like it, it feels like that there are there are so many missing elements in the the um, uh, you know around the ghost, the sort of uh, the the spooky factor that they really needed to go with. Don't show me the dog strategy, right? Like let's go more Jaws and less Cujo. Um, Obviously, they <laughs> they didn't have the benefit of seeing either of those films, but it's a sensibility that I'm poking at here. Like I just feel like um, like they could have kept more mystery uh, around not showing us that ridiculous dog. Well, but there, and, and there's not even that much dog. I mean, you see it twice, right? You see it once when it kills the the pet, the uh, the thief and pushes and, and sort of from he, from le- a long distance, yeah, from from, from yeah. afar. You see that really right. from afar, and then really the last time you see it is when it comes out at the end when Sullivan sets it out, and it's like, yeah, you uh, see him making it, you see him allowing it to sniff the boot, and right. and the chase at the end, you see it a number of times, like over well, and over and no, over it's, it's, but that it's, landscape, it's, and yeah, it's in that one scene, right? Yeah, I mean that's, that's a, it's a it's a long enough sequence that that like you you get it, yeah. So I I don't know I feel like they just didn't play up enough of the psychological fear that I think would have been um, that that I felt reading the material the original material that's what I remember is that it was it was a scary ghost story um, which yeah and I mean to that end it sounds like the ghost story in the in the book really was going to be one of those Scooby Doo stories where it's like oh there's this this scary monster out there and it's it's you know, scaring all of us is threatening the land, and it's and then the 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 Scooby Doo pack they find all the little clues that hey, it's not really a scary uh, monster; it's really a person who knows a lot about science and using all these these things to make themselves seem like they're a monster. And then they pull the mask off several times at the end, and that really felt like the setup for this. Right? It it was like. I was waiting for Holmes to kind of discover some things, but he never discovers anything. He just he talks about some things that he <laughs> discovers, like but we never see him do that. I know. Somehow he figures things out, but it's like, well, okay, it was nice that he kind of pieced all that together. The only clue we see him actually kind of figure out is when he looks at the painting. Yes. That's it. And then and somehow he's deduced all the stuff about uh, just Everything involving uh, Sullivan and his backstory. Like, and and not even really. I mean, even on the train, he admits to Watson that he really doesn't know anything, and he just has a hunch, and so he's going to have to catch the murderer in the act. That he really doesn't know anything that's going on uh, beyond where they are right then at that moment. And that, that was a little bit frustrating, and that, that I think is what is lost in the adaptation, because the you know what I remember, and it's been a long time since I've read the original, but what I remember is the you know reading in the language in the in the voice of Watson's um, you know Watson's journals, like writing the uh, hearing the story through Watson's perspective, uh, allowed us really to celebrate the greatness and the battle of wits that happens between these two men in a much more interesting way, and and by the time that. You know, Baskervilles was actually written. Obviously, you know, uh, um, Arthur Conan Doyle was uh, a much more sort of even savvy and experienced writer of the character, and I think it's just that much more interesting. Um, you know, even than than the first. I think it was a Study in Scarlet. Um, 
so I I uh, I feel like a lot was lost in the adaptation. And again, I go back to the time. Like it, this was an interesting and compelling work of literature that was probably made repeatedly too early that they just couldn't tell the story uh, the way it needed to be told. Well, considering how many times they've told it, I mean, from what I've heard from from people who are big fans of of Shake, uh, Shake I keep saying Shakespeare. I'm just like my brain is in the wrong Brit. Uh, of uh, Sherlock Holmes, um, they've never quite gotten uh, this story right because the Hound is such a, a difficult thing to crack. And because Holmes, the way that it sounds, like in the book, when Watson uh, goes up to uh, to the Baskerville estate uh, to kind of keep his eye on things, Holmes is gone for a good chunk of the story. Oh, most of the story, yeah. Yeah, the, the screenwriter here um, actually added in the bit the whole peddler character just so they could find a way to get um Holmes in here um more because people wanted more of Sherlock Holmes and he was gone for such a long period of time. Yeah. So yeah, I to me it just feels like a, a you know this is long after Doyle had kind of finished writing the Sherlock Holmes books. He'd already killed Sherlock Holmes with his fall in the waterfall uh, with Moriarty. And uh, but then he kind of came upon this this idea for this story when he took a trip out, I guess, out to uh, Dartmoor or is it Dartmoor or or wherever it was. Um, And he kind of um, realized he needed a detective to tell the story and is like, well, I already have uh, Sherlock Holmes, but he's dead. So maybe I'll bring him back to life and then I'll set this as a prequel. And so he did all of that, and it just feels like, you know, I, I feel like this story um, just, I don't know, I just feel like it's it's just one of those stories that uh, just feels kind of, I don't know, it feels like it's a good ghost story, and it shouldn't have been a, a Sherlock Holmes detective story. It, like, ex- exactly. Like, I, I, I go through all these problems, like, why does he even go to the trouble of making this whole ghost dog mystery thing even happen. I mean, it just, it seems so silly to me. It's like he's tracking the guy in London and he's, he's ready to shoot him out the side of his little buggy. (laughs) It's like, so why, if he's, if he's willing to do that or willing to poison him later on, why is he going to all this trouble to even, you know, create this whole myth of this uh, ghost dog? It just seems silly. Yeah, I mean, I can kind of get that. I, uh, you know, it's a stretch for me, but I, I sort of get that, like trying to keep the people uh, convinced, like to 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 keep the broader narrative of the fact that the Baskervilles are, it, it's just sort of a haunted family. Um, you know, I think that, I get why he would have gone to such lengths to, you know, to, to pull this kind of dog prank. Um, and, and that may or may not have ended up playing a, a part in his um, ultimate Desire to murder Sir Henry, uh, but to your point, that is the first thing I thought in this movie, which is how stupid that he wanted to shoot him and should have shot him to end this this story, this otherwise really dumb story. Like that's one of those <laughs> sort of cardinal errors. Like there was an opportunity to end the story in the first five minutes. Yeah. Right. And, the, did and, you the, the, and, and then to add even more of the of the kind of craziness, the seance, the uh, I mean, that is uh, that's another element that just ends up weird, uh, poorly blocked, poorly structured in the overall narrative and, and just ends up not making 
making much uh, sense. No, it doesn't. And I think it was added for the film. I don't believe there's yeah. a seance in the book. No, that's right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there was even longer part of the seance when the uh, the thief, I guess, kind of appears outside the window and, I don't know, it just kind of disturbed them or something. I, I don't know exactly how it happened. But it just, you know, the whole thing as it is just... I don't know. The seance is odd. I don't understand like some of the the subplot elements they created. Like, why is Mortimer's wife who does the seance? Why is she so cagey? And then all of a sudden, she's just like instantly willingly to do it and everything. It just <laughs> it was very strange. To she's me. not only that; she's just a her- a horrible character, like a poorly written character. She ends up being just sort of a whelp of a utility player uh, that is not interesting. Yeah. Right. No, it just didn't, uh, you know, and a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, they added a lot of the kind of the red herrings in here to kind of make it, make us, you know, feel like there's more options as far as who the bad guy is. So it just seems like this story, uh, I mean, I didn't read the book, but it feels like, uh, it feels like it must be one of the weaker ones because from what I've seen here and from what people talk about, and then this film just seems, it really feels like they rushed through this thing to just crank it out because, you know, hey, let's get this Sherlock Holmes thing out. Uh, I mean, the music is light. The direction is is sparse. Like, just so much of the story just feels like, well, let's not have that final chase scene. Let's just, you know, have Sherlock Holmes say something about it because we're done shooting. We're not going to go back out to that set again. I mean, that's kind of how it feels. You know, <laughs> I'm just like, it just, I don't know. It kind of, uh, the whole thing just felt so rushed and, and uh, uh, just, I don't know, just, just like we, they skipped through a lot. Do you think we're being hypercritical? Yes, probably. <laughs> I, I mean, I think absolutely, like with today's eyes and everything, we're, we're definitely being very hypercritical. And, you know, I mean, I think that's fair to an extent. I mean, we do have to step back and go, okay, but look at it for, for what it is, the context of this story that, uh, that Doyle wrote in... It was serialized in Strand magazine from 1901 to 1902, um, and I mean it's it's a it's a fun little ghost story, and I can imagine as a serial like reading this in the magazine each week, where you know you get to a point where it's like the at the end of the first um, serial uh, section, I believe it ends with where they reveal that oh there wasn't a man or wasn't footprints of a human, it was footprints of a giant hound, and you know just kind of like that sort of bit where you get that serial story that can really kind of excite you. So I can totally see how it can work told in the right way. I uh, I agree. And and also that we're, you know, we're seeing some, you know, characters, some actors that we know it, playing roles that are out of ca- you know, out of character themselves. Uh and and right. I think that is an, another interesting thing in eyes of the time seeing, you know, Basil Rathbone play the good guy and and see uh, Lionel Atwell play the, you know, uh, a good guy. Like those are uh, those are interesting things. Um to to note as a as a an audience member of the time i can imagine being 15 years old seeing this movie uh and being really excited about it yeah uh and i i can imagine seeing it as a as a grown up in 1939 and being excited about it um i can and also this is one of those mysteries that i could probably show my kids when they're at that right age and it could be something that they could really get into because it's 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 a simple enough story it's like watching murder she wrote or, you know, it's, it's like that sort of thing where it's like 
a nice, easy mystery to kind of tie me up for a short period of time. Everything gets resolved, and it's it's clever enough where I can kind of move on past it and wait for the next one. And I think that's what really a lot of these Sherlock Holmes stories were. I mean, you know, I can't remember how many novels uh, Doyle cranked out of Sherlock Holmes stories, but I mean, there were quite a few. Here's what here's here's that that was a leading question. Uh, and it gets back to this 1939 conundrum that we're in that mm. so many people say that 1939 was the was one of the great years of cinema and here we are we've done 10 films and two of them stand out as great and this one I was hoping I would see this again and think wow that nails it that's the one that reminds me why 1939 was great and I I just it just absolutely does not uh, it, it just doesn't hold up. Now, as soon as we put on those goggles and say, okay, can we look back in history and fairly say that 1939 was a great year of cinema history? Uh, based on what we have looked at, I, I certainly have a near zero confidence. I, yeah, and I, you know, sometimes I wonder if we're just picking the wrong films or what. <laughs> like, Jeez. I mean, Maybe there's some other good ones in 1939. I'm curious to actually watch more of them because now I feel like I've got this mission where I'm like, I've got to find a few more. There have to be a few more. Yeah. I don't know. We did the big names. We did the big names here. Yeah. There, I mean, there's more big names, but uh, we've done we've done our share. I think we've done quite a few. It's hard to say that we haven't done our fair share. That's all I'm saying. I hear you. All right. You know, we should uh, talk about uh, Ernest Pascal, the uh, the screenwriter who adapted Conan Doyle's uh, yes uh, uh, book. I mean, he he I think was tasked with the uh, the whole idea of one. I think it was smart to keep it in the period, like uh, you mentioned earlier, and that was I think a good thing to do because I do like this this period, the look. I liked the place. Everything worked really nicely in context of this story. Yes, yeah, and I, I think that was a the, did did I mention that this was the first of the of the Holmes films made that actually took advantage of the period like every other film had been made uh it, it contemporized to to the year that the film was released and i don't know what that is I, I think it's so funny that the further we get away from some of these you know legendary you know iconic properties the even the better they are uh in um, you know when they are uh released uh, to period, I you know I'm I'm thinking about the Robert Downey Jr. films. I thought those were really fun romps. I I didn't think they held up as particularly strong adaptations of of the original writing, but I really enjoyed them. I enjoyed the interpretation of the character, um, and and it makes it more interesting to see the BBC series of Sherlock Holmes contemporized. I thought that was the novelty, and it turns out I'm I have it backwards. No, it's. It, I I do like that. This is a, a period thing. I I think that that's uh, great, and it 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 does strike me as weird that it took them so long to actually make that decision. Yeah, I, I don't really know why they did that, but um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things, I guess. Uh, what else do we know about Ernest Pascal? Uh, he was uh, president of the SWG Screenwriters Guild for uh, two years. Yeah, 35 to 37 before this was made. Yeah, he had his hand on a number of uh, Shirley Temple films. And uh, I, I think he's uh, just one of those guys who had a, a solid studio career from the uh, the 20s uh, into, toward the very beginning of the 60s, kind of cranking through stuff. I don't think I've seen much else of his, although 1939, he also had 
Um, he contributed a little bit to Stanley and Livingstone, and then he also worked on Hollywood Cavalcade. So he did have a few things going on in 1939 to keep him busy, but I haven't seen anything else of his. He's one of those guys that uh, I think he's just kind of a, you know, probably a 20th Century Fox player at the time and uh, just kind of doing what they needed in this in this film. So he did the uh, he did the adaptation. Uh, Sidney Lanfield directed the thing. Yeah, he was a former jazz musician, and uh, I I don't think his direction stands out as much of anything fancy. I feel like somebody helming a a, a mystery film has the opportunity to really build some mystery into it, and I don't feel like he did. In uh, other than the sets, I felt like the the design of the sets lent to the mystery. I felt like he cast it well, and like the studio really helped find the right cast for this. That worked really well. But I, I, there's a lot of stuff going on with the with just the story. I'm like, they could have done more. They could have uh, really done some fun stuff with this, and they didn't. But and and maybe it goes to show that uh, you know Sydney uh, is primarily known as a comedy director. And that could be why it just feels a little strange that uh, that this was something he did. But that I mean, he's no, is he's exactly n- it. Yeah, it, it felt like a like a, a Saturday vaudeville show. Yeah, I mean, he's known for you know TV TV episodes on like the Adams Family, yeah. and McHale's Navy, and uh, he did the um, uh, the Bob Hope film, uh, the Lemon Drop Kid, and you know he's just kind of known for that sort of stuff more than this sort of stuff. Uh, but you did say, you mentioned that, and, and I, I, I pre-agreed, uh, I think the production design and the sets actually were really good. Yeah, I loved it. I thought, I thought they were really great. I thought that uh, Richard Day and Hans Peters uh, did a great job designing the sets here. The Dartmoor set, uh, and this was all filmed in, in, in Hollywood in the 20th Century Fox uh, stages. Um, the Dartmoor set filled an entire soundstage and, and rumored for uh, Richard Green to actually have gotten lost on it in the moors, <laughs> which I think is really funny. Um, but After yeah, seeing I, the movie, I can, I, can, I can understand that. Yeah, right. Especially if those <laughs> fog machines are on, man. That was a, I, I wonder what we're shooting amount of fog. That was probably too much <laughs> fog. A comic amount of fog. Oh, uh, uh, Gwen Wakeling did the costume design. And I think it was uh, nice to see that, uh, you know, she followed the appropriate dress code. And Sherlock Holmes only wears his deer, his deerstalker hat when he's out in the country. And when he's in London, he's wearing his top hat as a, as a true gentleman would. And I'm sure that's how the Australians would wear him, too. I'm ple- <laughs> but only when they go to the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pleased you made note of that. As yes, a gentleman. Yes. Got to tie everything together, Pete. Uh, this is a, a Zanuck, a joint. Yep. Daryl yep. Zanuck. Keeping the family. Oh, yes. Nope. The, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I think it's great that they um, started bringing Sherlock Holmes to the forefront, particularly with this pair. Um, uh, that being said, I think they only produced two Sherlock Holmes films from what I was reading. And then they felt, you know, with with the war and everything, that it was a little too uh, close to home, maybe to be telling these these uh, uh, kind of just fun stories about this English detective when um, there was more serious things going on. And so then Universal picked up the mantle and they did the rest of them. So I don't know uh, if I don't know how Zanuck felt about that, but I can't imagine he felt good. 
We should talk about the cast. Uh, Richard Green ended up getting top billing, uh, even though he obviously is not Sherlock Holmes. He plays the young uh, heir, Sir Henry uh, Baskerville, coming home to his estate to see what the landscape hath wrought. Uh, and he ends up getting top billing in this thing as the romantic lead, uh, in, in in spite of uh, Basil's titular character. Yeah, he had been in, uh, I think, uh, six films before this, not a lot, and um, a few more in 1939, including The Little Princess with uh, Shirley Temple. So he's... <laughs> She was big right around the time. She was big, yeah. A lot of people were She was actually in contention to play Sherlock Holmes, I think. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, and then she turned it down because she heard she was going to be uh, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, but <laughs> yeah, that didn't go so well. Because uh, those fe- those folks heard she was going to be Scarlet and Gone with the Wind. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> She's bouncing all over the place. Uh, but no, Shirley uh, Temple goes to Washington. <laughs> well, that would have been an incredible film. But yeah, the um, this was the first and only time that uh, that uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson did not get top billing, um, especially with Rathbone and Bruce. Um, they were just so iconic that uh, they always got for top billing after this. And uh, yeah, Richard Green. I mean, he'd only been in uh, six films before this, but he'd been popular enough, I guess that uh, that he got to uh, get top billing. So it's so strange. It is. I mean, I liked him though. I thought he was. I thought he was fine in the role. No, I did too. I, you know, I all of the. I, you get into all the characters. The characters, character actors in this film were, were I thought, uh, generally terrific. I liked watching them interact on stage. Yeah. You know, I just uh, the, the the whole thing comes together weirdly. Uh, but Richard Green, he played the the right handsome lad. You know, I mean, I, coming from the moment he steps off the boat, and the the young woman and her mother are are trying to get themselves invited over to the Baskerville estate. I thought that was just a terrific introduction to him and and uh, what he represents. And it was a it was a great way to give us a sense of class, um, which which ends up playing off a, a good sort of. Um, uh, kind of visual conflict that we see him as such a classy guy, and then he goes to this place that is just like broken down in the middle of Mars. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's. Uh, I think it was great. I really enjoyed uh, Richard Green. It's like the Swamp Castle, <laughs> the Holy Grail. <laughs> it is. That's right. It is. All I this could it. be yours. <laughs> I kept wanting to say, Sherlock, Dr. Watson, don't look at the water. You'll see the dead. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Yeah, Richard Green actually might be most well-known, at least in some circles, probably not uh, ours. But in the 50s, he was in the TV show uh, uh, Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood. And he was in all 144 episodes as Robin Hood in that show. Was he Robin Hood? (laughs) It was Robin Hood. He was Robin Hood? Yes, he was. Robin of the Hood. Sir Robin of Loxley? He was. Yep. Kept him busy. I imagine 144, 144 episodes. 144 episodes. I thought this was actually really interesting. I don't know if we can attribute it to the director or the or who, but oftentimes when people would tell this story and they would show um uh the the former Baskerville Hugo in the flashback, the kind of the evil one. They would often cast the same uh, actor as Sullivan, and you'd cu- you could kind of tell as the audience, you know, that's him with the beard and all that sort of stuff, because we see the portrait later, and, and that portrait certainly looks more like Sullivan than Green. 
However, in the flashback, in this particular film, they actually had Richard Green play Hugo. In Which the makes so much more of, sense anyway. Yeah, right. To, but they did that to kind of throw people off. So I thought that was actually a pretty clever little uh, ploy. So I, I give them kudos for that. All right. There's some kudos. There is Store there, it see, up. We're not just here to be mean. Basil Rathbone. I actually, another wonderful part of this film. I love him as Sherlock Holmes. There is a reason that he became kind of the iconic Sherlock Holmes and the one that people picture when they talk of Sherlock Holmes. This is that just kind of iconic look that uh, that Sherlock Holmes has. And I just absolutely loved him. I mean, I, I, I know I've known him as Sherlock Holmes only from pictures, but it's, it still is that iconic thing burned in my head. We've talked about him on the show in We're No Angels. Right. And then, of course, uh, you know, I've seen him in The Adventures of Robin Hood. And so I've seen him primarily as a villain on screen, but it was great to actually see him finally as Robin Hood. So I am thrilled that I got to see him do the uh, do the part. I I agree. I think he's a great Robin Hood, and and he is one of those actors. Another one. He is the he is the Daniel Radcliffe of his age. <laughs> Get, see, how I did that. That was great. Uh, you know, he was he was really a good bad guy. Uh, and and you know, films like David Copperfield and Captain Blood, and again, you saw him in The Adventures of Robin Hood. He did not get typecast as the bad guy uh, by being typecast as Sherlock Holmes. Uh, ended up doing, you know, I think we mentioned he did 14 films as Holmes, and then uh, between 39 and 46, which is a lot of films as this character in a really short amount of time, two a year, right? Two a year. Yeah, uh, and not did. to mention over 300 radio shows. Crazy amount of yeah. Holmes that he he took on. You're right. I mean, he just became iconic. He ended up wrapping his career uh, more of a song and dance man with uh, the likes of Bob Hope and Danny Kaye and did some low-budget horror flicks um, uh, after after his turn as Holmes. But really, he, you know, what was he? He was always introduced as Sherlock Holmes. One of my favorite uh, uh, character, not his character, but bit parts that he was in, I guess you could say, was the the narrator in the story of Mister Toad in the Adventures of Ichabod and Mister Toad. Yeah, he's terrific. And and uh, did you find out that his it was his this was his favorite film of, yeah. of Holmes? That's what I heard of of the of the films that he did as Sherlock Holmes. This was his favorite. And I think it was because it was kind of the introduction. This was yeah. where he kind of got to find that character, or I suppose you could almost say where the character found him, because certainly this was that uh, type of iconic character like, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker or Han Solo or something like that, where everybody's going to kind of identify you as that character from that point on. Uh, Wendy Berry uh, ended up, uh, she had. Something of a career in crime films in the 30s uh, and ended up not having much of a career after that. She did this film. She ended up as a, a bit player in, in the series of uh, The Saint and uh, Falcon. And uh, after this film, into the 1940s, she ended up, uh, she ended up starting her TV career and um, was uh, she had a, a show on, I think, NBC called Picture This and then the Wendy Berry Show. Uh, and wrapped up a career hawking lipstick as the Revlon saleswoman on the $64,000 question and was so popular that she caused it to sell out across the country. That People is crazy. People did love her lipstick pitch. You know what my favorite thing about her is? What? 
She is J.M. Barry's goddaughter, the uh, J.M. Barry of Peter Pan. And she actually took the name Wendy because of him. Her real name, I think, is Marguerite. Oh, that's very sweet. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Uh, And Nigel Bruce. Uh, So she actually did. We're doing these in in, uh, billing order, I think, right? I think so, She got third billing, and then Nigel Bruce got fourth billing as Dr. Watson. Uh, Fans of... Uh, of Holmes, the literature, nicknamed Nigel Bruce's Dr. Watson Bubis Britannicus because they felt like he was uh, he was too much the bumbler and not tuned well tuned enough to the original material that that he in the films was used more for comic relief than anything else uh, of substance and they did not like that. Well, that's interesting because I uh, which uh, and I can see that here. As a non-Sherlock reader, I, um, I, I read that the way that the books are written, kind of from his point of view, as if he's kind of writing letters and all that sort of thing, mm-hmm. you don't get a real clear picture of who that character is anyway. And so, so the filmmakers always struggled to really tell the story of Watson because you can't just you, – you can't make a film the way that they write the book. And so you have to give more to that character. And so they were always trying to find stuff they could do with that character to make it somewhat interesting. So, I mean, from my perspective, as somebody who's not read Sherlock Holmes, I actually really enjoyed this character as Watson. I enjoyed this version of Watson, and it really kind of clicked with me. And the pairing worked really well. So that was my that was my take on it. You know, I can totally see how you would say that. I, I think going back to... Um, you know, Sherlock Holmes, the, the 2009 film, I think Jude Law, um, you know, while I'm, I, I don't necessarily think that the thuggishness is, is as much a part of the Watson's character. I think he actually plays a good Dr. Watson. He is a Dr. Watson. I love, I love, love what they did uh, in the BBC series. And that one is, uh, uh Martin Freeman's interpretation of Dr. Watson as a, a, a you know, war physician, uh, a vet, I think, is a terrific interpretation. They just give it more sort of severity in the character and, and not so much comic relief. So from, from my perspective, and again, I'm, I'm not a Holmes uh, a Conan Doyle expert, but, um, but it just feels like the intention of the character of Holmes in the, or of Watson in the literature is to deliver the story, not necessarily to deliver it in a way that is somehow comical. And I, I and I can totally see that, and I can appreciate the people who are fans of the of the books to not care about that. But then, when you actually make a film, and if that's how you portray uh, Watson, I feel like it just becomes a very flat character. So, and again, I haven't seen many of these films, so maybe. Maybe there are versions of the of the Holmes stories that uh, that have him being more uh, kind of closer to the book, and uh, but yeah. and it works fine. So who knows? I I don't know. But don't you? I mean, really, don't you fancy the the nickname Bubis Britannicus? <laughs> I do, and I love that. You know, from what I read, he pretty much made a career playing upper class buffoons. Yes. So it sounds like that title could really just work for him yes. through his whole career, not just his uh, his uh, versions of the home stories. And I think they were all like <laughs> colonels, military leadership, like they were all boobs in leadership, like aristocratic boobery. Lionel Atwell, uh, here's another one who ended up playing counter to cast. He was one of the great villains 
of the 30s and 40s, these horror classics, Dr. X, The Mystery of the Wax Museum. Uh, it, now, you mentioned Scooby-Doo villains. If this guy isn't the model of Scooby-Doo villains, I don't know who is. Yes, exactly. He is so perfect as kind of what you'd think the Scooby-Doo villain is going to be. He just looks like he's up to something. <laughs> totally. He played, uh, this was my favorite, this wasn't until 1944, uh, but he played Cyrus Maldor in Captain America, the evil scientist that goes by the name the Scarab. Is that <laughs> not so good? That's this was fantastic. when Captain America was actually Grant Gardner. Grant wow. Gardner? That's crazy. Who's that? I, I don't think I even knew that they made Captain America movies back then. With This was uh, Dick Purcell as Captain America and Lorna Gray. You need to do a Lorna Gray series. There you go. Yeah, anyway, back to Lionel Atwell. He was fantastic uh, and ended up coming back around. I thought this was really interesting. He did, came back around as Professor Moriarty, the legendary uh, Sherlock Holmes nemesis. Uh, with Basil Rathbone just uh, four years later. Right. And they had also, uh, just before this, they had also been in Son of Frankenstein together. So, yeah, they had been on screen a number of times together. I, I thought he was uh, he was terrific. If he didn't uh, lend a little too much to the uh, celebration of the occult through the seance, um, uh, otherwise he was just, a, he was a great uh, doctor and um, he was the sort of catalyst of the events of the investigation taking place. And I thought he was great. Absolutely. What about John Carradine? Our second uh, John Carradine film of 1939. Tall, skinny. He's perfect as kind of the uh, the red herring butler. I think he's great. Uh, and it, it was fun to kind of see him uh, playing this sort of role. It was it was a nice change from uh, what he gave us in in Stagecoach. So uh, I enjoyed him here. Apparently, though, he was upset that his character had to wear a beard because. As a proper gentleman knows, a butler would never have a beard. I, you know, I, I liked him. I thought, again, he was a little bit, too, I mean, everybody who wasn't Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson was just a bit too shifty. It's kind of exhausting with the red herrings. It was exactly what the, I think what their intention was, because apparently there weren't enough red herrings in the book. So I think they, they went the other extreme. Too much. <laughs> uh, the dog... Was I? It was not. I think this was uh, uh, the uh, w- w- Terry. Terry the dog lost this part. Yes, <laughs> Terry the dog. Or, or we should say maybe this dog actually went out for uh, Wizard of Oz. That would have been better <laughs> if Toto uh, was a giant mastiff or something. I, I would love to have seen this dog in uh, in the Wicked Witch. Yes, basket on the back <laughs> of her bike. Oh, like uh, saddlebags no. on the back of her <laughs> this giant dog. That's oh, too good. What do we know about this dog? Anything? This dog was was named Blitzen, but at the time, because Blitzen, Blitzen sounded a little too German, the studio was actually just afraid of even using the dog's real name in the credits. So they, they changed the dog's name for the credits to Chief. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, and, do you uh, know what the dog was? Uh, I think it was a mastiff. Right, I think like it a was a bull mastiff. I think right. I'm uh, just. Yeah. I was just guessing. I'm not much of a dog person, but that stuck out to me as a big or name. a great big Dane. sounding it was name. A great Dane. I can't remember, but yeah. it was something big. It was yeah. definitely a big dog. Uh, let's see. I think that's. Are, was there anybody else in the cast that really stuck out to you? Um, 
those are the those are the big names that I think we see the most of. So the only other person I wanted to mention was uh, Barlow Borland, who uh, was just he was so just he was such a fun character as Franklin in this film. Um, just this crazy old guy who was uh, convinced from the beginning that uh, this was murder and was suspicious of everyone and was dead set on suing everybody for everything. He was the best MacGuffin because he was such a he he was such an uh, like adversary for everybody, and yet they kept inviting him to dinner. Well, I would too if he was my neighbor. I'd be afraid he'd <laughs> sue me if I didn't. <laughs> well, there were, I mean, everything he would. Uh, what was the the one that was the, like you you said something to me and that'll make for a tidy little lawsuit. <laughs> Just <Right>. brilliant. <laughs> Uh, he was actually I, of everybody. I think he was m- certainly the most entertaining character I- in the thing, just in terms of raw, uh, straight up laughs. Like he, he just really every time he was on stage or on screen, I thought this is. I, I can't wait to see what he's going to say next. Yeah, um, I was always looking forward to him. I'd say he would be my third favorite person to watch on screen because yes. he was just so much fun. Sixty-four credits in his uh, IMDb uh, page. He has been in a lot of stuff. I, a lot of uncredited, a lot of uncredited. Um, so I, you know, I'm not sure what to make of him in terms of a character actor, but he was certainly fun to watch in this one. Uh, you've already mentioned the music. Where was it? Yeah, that was a real problem I had. Is I just felt like they didn't, uh, they kind of cut that the music budget. I mean, there's little bits of music here and there, but for the most part, it's like, gosh, this is a mystery film. You know, we keep cutting to like the the whole dog chase and stuff. There's just like no music. You're just watching this thing. It's like they could really use some uh, some uh, score here to build the tension. This specific home story has been made a lot. I think. What did you say? Twenty times, something like that. I think it was a little more than twenty. If you count, I think uh, the TV show Elementary had an episode called Hounded. Um, that was the most re- recent version of it. But yeah, there was a. a a Japanese version, uh, The Adventures of Henry Baskerville and a Dog in 2015. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, yeah, you can go back from from the silent era, 1914, all the way through uh, 2016. There have been versions of this thing constantly cranked out. Have you seen any other of them? You haven't, obviously. No, I, yeah, I haven't seen any of them. There were, there were a couple that stood out to me that I now really want to watch. The first one is 1959. And this was a gothic horror version starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee as Holmes and Watson, respectively. Uh, there is that, a that's the one that I think is the uh, is the Hammer version that has the kids, yes. with the dog. So I'm actually curious to watch that one too. Very curious to see that. 1978 brought us Peter Cook as uh, Sherlock Holmes in a comedy spoof of the Hound of the Baskervilles. I want to see that one because I want to see just. How would you spoof something that that is already seems to be spoofing itself? Nineteen eighty one, Vasily Levanov uh, did the uh, played Holmes in a Soviet adaptation, and he ended up playing uh, the Holmes character. I think twelve times, as far as I can count. He was he was the Basil Rathbone of uh, the Soviet era. Holmes played uh, in a number of different places, and then Matt Frewer played Sherlock Holmes in the year two thousand. Wow. Uh, I, I, that was news to me as well. He's not even British. I know. Neither so, is Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess yet. that doesn't matter. The last yeah. little thing that I wanted to say was uh, the the last line of the film, which was quite controversial, apparently, when uh, when Sherlock Holmes says, 
Watson, the needle, as he walks out of the room. Yes. Um, yeah, a little, uh, little drug addict thing there. That line actually got removed from the uh, film in all of its screenings until the 60s. And uh, that was when they re- brought it back, reinstated it. And it wouldn't pass the censors at the time. He's a furious drug user. Holmes. And it's it's in the books, but uh, I, not not something that they would allow audiences at the time to see yeah. in the films or even just hear a line like that. Protect the people, Andy. Protect their fragile minds. They should have just had Watson walk off with a with some uh, yarn, and maybe he was just going to do he some a, sewing. He was a knitter. Yeah, the needle. He needed the needle for the <laughs> knitting. So those are the ones I'm interested in. Did this do anything in 1939 in terms of awards? And uh... you know, through this, I keep referring to Sullivan, and I I mean Stapleton. I yes. don't know why I have that name confused, but uh, it's Stapleton as the bad guy. Yes, yes. and uh, this uh, did uh, really well. Although I couldn't find a single thing about it, I uh, scoured the interwebs trying to find any information about the finances. Um, uh, Eddie Mannix, unfortunately, was not working at Fox. He was over at MGM. So uh, Fox does not have any information about uh, the finances for this uh, anywhere. That being said, this was a big grocer for Fox. It only took them a few months to realize how uh, popular it was and to greenlight a sequel and to make it. And it was released in 1939 as well. That's how popular this movie was. Yeah, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes with uh, Rathbone and Bruce was also released in 1939. So um, this film did did really well. I just wish I had some more figures for it. Okay. Andy, so this is, as we have said a number of times, this is the last of our 1939 films, and we are not big on the films of 1939. I think that the real highlights for me... Uh, and and I'm taking it back to last year's when we when we did this as well. Yeah, the whole the whole the tenor. whole thing. Yeah, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Obviously, a big favorite uh, of ours. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Um, we uh, I think we were. Um, gosh, was there anything else we were huge fans of? Wizard of Oz. I think that we have. Uh, we were definitely. I mean, I know we were fans of Wizard of Oz. I'm, you know, compared with the list of films: Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, Mr. Smith, Roaring Twenties, Only Angels Have Wings, The Women, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, and Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Oh my gosh, The Women was terrible. Yeah, we didn't like that one. That's the bottom of our chart, and Mr. Smith is the opposite end at number two on our chart. Yeah. Looking at our our flick chart, where things have landed. Yeah, Mr. Smith is number two. Wizard of Oz is 62. Goodbye, Mr. Chips, 107. Stagecoach, 118. The Roaring Twenties, 149. Only Angels Have Wings, 150. Ninochka, 196. Gone with the Wind, 209. The Women, 233. I mean, I would say Gone with the Wind, I can understand why it's a great film. It's just I had a harder time this time separating um, the issues I have with it with the film that it is. So that's why I think that film falls low. I think that it would be a hard film for me to go back and watch except as kind of an educational experience. I think so, too. For me, 1939 represents as wildly overhyped for the films that came out of it. And like any... Any year in film, there are some highs and some lows, and this one has uh, a couple of highs and some real dogs that just don't hold up over time. Some hounds, one might say. <laughs> one might. I, I guess my lesson is uh, I think that uh, I, I don't know when. I still never have found 
when it began that people started saying that 1939 was such a great year in film. I've seen people quoting that, hey, this is the, a great year in film, as if they're quoting it from somewhere else. But I don't know who initially said it or why. Although I have heard some people say that it was a great year representing what the studios were doing in cinema at the time. I can, with that context, I can see it a little bit. But I, that being said, I just don't think that there, I, from what I've seen, that there's that much great stuff going on in this year. I know there are other films that came out this year that are probably worth watching. Wuthering Heights, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Dark Victory. Um, certainly films that I, I would like to see just to get a sense as to you know what else is out there that might be good. Um, so maybe it's worth looking at some other films, but at, as it stands right now, I feel like you know I, I've seen a good a good swath of films from 1939, and I personally certainly don't see it as one of the great years. If anything, this ser- this is a debunking series exercise that we have taken on. We yes. have debunked it. Yes, we have. Consider it debunked. Please, <laughs> let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you log in with your fancy account over there and uh, and into the one that you use specifically to rank next reel movies. If you haven't set up your own Flickchart next reel account, you should do that. Just use something like FNAME TNR. FNAME being your first name. It's It's really easy to keep these straight. And then you can rank this film in line with all the other films that we've talked about. And if you want to see that, head over to thenextreel.com slash master-index. That is the that is the secret vault of all the movies that we have ever done on this show by series in one great big long page. And so you can browse around there and start flick charting away. Uh, that's it, Andy. What are we going to do here? Hound of the Baskervilles versus... Versus Oh Brother Where Art Thou? <laughs> Back as our Oh Brother block. Yeah, it's not going to get past Oh Brother. It's definitely not. Uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles or Taxi Driver? I am all in with Taxi Driver. Yeah, I'm I'm all in with Taxi Driver too. The Hound of the Baskervilles or Escape from New York? Oh, jeez, Escape from New York. I would say Escape from New York, but you know there is the element of the fantastic uh, Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes. That being said, it's not enough for me to vote against Escape from New York. Yeah. The Hound of the Baskervilles, or Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. All right, here you go. Indiana Jones is not going to win this one for me. <laughs> I was wondering where you're going to go with that one. Yeah, that's a pretty tough film. Um, uh, the Pile of Ants. I'll say Hound of the Baskervilles. <laughs> Oh, there were a lot of animals in that movie. The Hound of Baskervilles. He swung on the thing with the monkeys, Andy. (laughs) Monkeys, prairie dogs, ants. I don't know what Spielberg was doing there. Uh, The Baskervilles or Murder by Death. I'll take a little Murder by Uh, Death. I'll take Murder by Death on this one, yeah. Was was Holmes one of the spoof characters in that? I can't remember Mm, now. I don't believe he was, no. It seemed like that would have been appropriate. More appropriate, I think, than uh, Peter Sellers' character. (laughs) Yes. This is a good one. This is a little uh, Basil Rathbone v. Basil Rathbone. The Hound of the Baskervilles or We're No Angels. I'm going to go with We're No Angels. Absolutely, We're No Angels. Mm-hmm. What a fun film that is. Yes. I play that every Christmas now. Thank oh, you that's for introducing so great. It to me. Yeah. The Hound of the Baskervilles or The Dead Zone? The Dead Zone. 
They have the dead zone. The Hound of the Baskervilles or the Blob. I have a feeling you're going to go Hound of the Baskervilles. I'm going to go the Blob. Really? Yep. Just because of the theme song? (laughs) Well, it does have a pretty fantastic theme song. (laughs) Uh, It's it's just a fun, like, that's a real monster movie. That's something that, uh, you know, they could have done with this. uh, Yes, you're right. I would have liked to have seen the Blob of the Baskervilles. (laughs) God, what I would have given for the Blob of the Baskervilles. Oh, Oh, I need a movie poster of that. <laughs> the blob of the Baskervilles. That's the best. That is just the best. I am also going to go with the blob now, especially. <laughs> All right. Well, that puts it at number 220. Number 220 on our chart. Out of? Out of 234. 234. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I, what does that mean for your uh, letterboxed? I feel like this is a two-star. I feel, I, and I'm, I'm struggling if I'm being overly generous with it, like if it's really a one and a half. But uh, I think because of the introduction of these really fun characters, the the film itself, I, I think, is probably one and a half. But I feel like Rathbone and Bruce um, brought us so much to the table that they were really fun to watch. And I really enjoyed this uh, pairing of these two guys. So I give it two stars. I will. Uh, I I was gonna shoot for one and a half on this one, but I I think you'll round me up to two. Uh, I think that's that's fine. Okay. <laughs> that's just fine. Twist your arm. Yeah, that's kind of where I am. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that that leaves us with an open hole here. If this is the end of our 1939 series, Andy, where do we go from here? Yeah, well, in case people uh, haven't realized, we did miss our uh, our little uh, speakeasy due to some poor scheduling on my part of international <laughs> time zones. Ironically, Australia. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a it's a an Australia week for sure. <laughs> but yes, uh, so I kind of botched that. So that's going to be coming up soon. Uh, but instead, we've got uh, our film board this coming uh, weekend with Demolition, Jake Gyllenhaal's new film, which looks to be exciting. And then we kick off our Shane Black series with Lethal Weapon, and then following it up with The Last Boy Scout, The Long Kiss Goodnight, and his directorial debut, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. That's going to be a fun series. I mean, uh, literally will be a fun series. I very much look forward to seeing these movies again. After this struggle (laughs) through 1939... I really am looking forward to it. It's going to be a a fun, fun time. I'd forgotten what we put after Shane Black. (laughs) We're going from 1939 to Shane Black to Fritz Lang. Is anybody Uh going to be listening after this? (laughs) Everybody will be alone under a bridge in the rain. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Oh, good stuff. All right. Well, I'm clearly going to need my rest, Andy, so I... I've got to go to bed. First, bring me my needle. Andy, there are not... 
very many one-star films in this, or one-star reviews for this film. Everybody loves it. That's Maybe crazy. we're wrong about 1939. Maybe we're the outsiders. Oh, goodness. I feel like some, it, it's, you know, we're not betting the market, so I feel like I'm okay being the contrarian here. Uh, but I'm telling you, I stand with Sherlockian, who gives this one star with an absolutely awful. This is by far the worst Holmes movie I have ever seen, says Sherlockian. I com- it is completely unfaithful to the great novel upon which it is based. One previous viewer commented that this version cut out the subplots to leave a main idea. I could not disagree more. On the contrary, it removed the entertaining original subplots and added Holmes disguised as a fiddler and, of all things, a seance. Nigel Bruce is his usual idiotic Watson, as anyone who has read the original novel knows. Holmes praises Watson's intelligence. Basil Rathbone gives us a bland, annoying Holmes with absolutely no character. For good Holmes material, check out Jeremy Brett's incredible masterworks. They were true to the books with stellar acting and great plots. These are the ones Conan Doyle would have liked. Interesting. Yeah, there you go. I stand with Sherlockian, although I I think the performance of of Rathbone was, I, I liked that. I found that. I was charmed by that. I guess I yeah. should see Jeremy Brett. What's yours? Yeah, well, mine is uh, by T. Martin, who says, pretty good. The, this movie scared the hell out of me when I was a kid, but not now. Pretty good if you like old black and white movies. That was a three star. <laughs> that reads as a three star. Yeah, yeah. Just like, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of where it lands. <laughs> well, thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season five, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. I'm getting better at this. 1939. Gone with the Wind. Wizard of Oz. Goodbye, Mr. Chip. Uh, out of the Baskervilles. Nice. Meryl Street. Uh, Kramer vs. Kramer. Uh, Sophie's Choice. Uh, French <laughs> Lieutenant's Woman. Nice. How about Naughty Children? Uh, uh, the Bad Seed. Uh, Village of the Damned. The Innocents. Nice. Uh, your favorite, David Mamet. Clinton Eric Ross. Oh, I figured you'd nail that one. We've covered lots of great movies that started as books. Books like Metropolis, Manhunt. Ministry of Fear, The Great Escape. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. 
Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.